Well, we are in the Psalms, and we will be for June and July, and we want to encourage everyone to read one psalm a day and spend some time in prayer. Psalms speaks to both the mind and heart, instructive and emotive. And psalms can help us to relate to God in richer and deeper ways. I wish we had the original tunes for some of these psalms. I'm so grateful for songwriters that have put them into, uh, uh, into music today. And I, was, I really love that first song we did today, using the psalms there. But anyway, many of these were meant to be sung and be used that way. And today is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's Psalm 1. Uh, at baccalaureate, one of our seniors read this, and she actually had it memorized, and it would be a great one to memorize. I want to start out, though, with a list of items on the screen. Athleticism, money, talent, beauty, prestige, popularity, great family, intelligence, good job, happiness, and no, that's not a list of my attributes. <laughs> actually, it looks like some of you. But anyway, these are some things that people can envy in others. You see someone with great talent or a job, great job, you wish you could have that, or maybe you envy somebody else's family life. Envy, generally speaking, is an ugly trait. In fact, it is listed as one of the seven deadly sins. And it's a subtle force. Most of the time we're doing it, we don't even know we're doing it. The first word in the book of Psalms, Psalms 1-1, the first word, and I think it's a key word, is the word blessed. It's a rich word, carries the idea of fortunate, being favored by God, it also carries the connotation of being in a state of being envied by others. Someone who is blessed is in a desirable position. And Psalm 1 says, this is who you want to aspire to be like. This is the person envy. Don't envy the people on that list. Envy the people who are described here in Psalm 1. And it sets the tone for the whole book. Let's read it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like shaft that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Go back to verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not, and then lists three things he does not do. Does not walk in the step with the wicked, not stand in the way of sinners, not sit in the seat of company of mockers. Now, this is a common poetic form in Hebrew literature called synonymous parallelism. Three parallel lines, they're pretty much the same message. Okay? The righteous does not walk, stand, or sit in the step, way, or company of the wicked sinners and mockers. Not making three different points but describing in slightly different ways one main point, and that point is the one who is blessed is the one who doesn't think, live, or act as the wicked do. And the person to be envied is the person that rejects all aspects of evil. Psalm 1 is categorized as a wisdom psalm, meaning this, this is a wise way to live. You'll be better off by following this advice. And there's all kinds of wisdom in the Bible, like watch your tongue, watch your temper, work hard, don't be lazy, treat people right. There's a wise way to live, and you'll be blessed. And Psalm 1 is a very simple message. A life ordered after the will of God will lead to blessedness and well-being. A life that violates the will of God leads to a life of dis diminishment, diminishment, whatever that word is, and disintegration. Now, to understand the philosophy behind Psalm 1 in all literature, wisdom literature, I want to look at Psalm 19. 
And when you look at Psalm 19, you'll see two completely different themes, and you wonder, what do these two themes have in common? But they do. 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And it goes on for six verses, celebrating the joy and the wonder of creation, how it reveals God's glory, especially about the skies. And of course, lately we've seen all different kinds of skies, and they all pour forth the glory of God. And then all of a sudden, verse 7, it switches gears. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So these verses affirm the life-giving power of the law. The first half is about creation. Second half about the law. And to us, Wow, those look like unrelated themes. But the concept behind wisdom literature is the creation of God and the law of God agree with each other. The creation, the world in which we live, that declares the glory of God and the law that reveals His will actually go together. Creation is ordered. It operates by certain principles and there are laws of nature. And the law of God, the Word of God, reveals some of those principles that are in creation. So they are understood together so that the law articulates God's intention for us in the world. The reason lying destroys, because it goes against God's created order for relationships. He has built into creation and into every human being a need to trust in order to relate. And when we lie, relationships are ruined. We not only go against God's law, which says not to lie, but we're going against His created order. Sexual sins adultery, pornography. That goes against his created order for sexual relationships. And you can argue, argue how it's a matter of choice and you can call it freedom and how maybe it's in the genetic code, but the results are clear today. Sexual addiction, sexual diseases, rampant immorality, psychological problems, family breakdown, sex outside of marriage goes against God's created nature. Now, it's not that it's just it's wrong, only, uh, just that it's wrong. It is actually destructive. Greed, same thing. When you look at the world, giving is built into creation. Trees give oxygen for the animals to breathe. The soil feeds the plants and the trees. This ecological cycle is actually nature giving to one another. And when humans take and are greedy, we're going against the grain of nature. That's why generous people tend to be more fulfilled and in sync with God's world. William Law wrote one of my favorite devotional books, back in the 1700s, and he writes this book on how to live a holy, righteous life. And he says in one of his chapters, imagine a fellow is given a number of items and has no idea what to do with them. He has given bread, wine, water, gold dust, iron chains, and gravel, and he has no idea what those are for. So, to quench his thirst, he puts gold dust into his eyes because he doesn't know any better. His ears hurt, so he puts wine into his ears. He gets hungry and puts gravel into his mouth. He decides the iron chains are to wear, so he puts them around his neck. When he gets cold, he puts his feet in the water. When he gets tired, he sits on the bread. And the result is a miserable life. He chokes on the gravel. He's blinded with the dust, cold because of the water, and loaded down with irons. he got wine in his ears. And then Law says, suppose some god comes along and shows him how to use all those things that are causing all these problems and the god lays down some rules rule number one thou shalt not eat gravel 
Rule number two, thou shalt not put gold dust in your eyes. Rule number three, thou shalt not sit on bread. Rule number four, thou shalt not put wine in your ears, and so forth. And someone might say, well, that God is inhibiting his freedom with all those rules and regulations. No, that God is making his life better. That God knows what these things are supposed to be used for. And that's why the laws and commands of God are a delight and a blessing. William Law said some people will perhaps object that these guidelines for holy living are too great a restraint, that by depriving ourselves we shall render our lives dull, uneasy, and melancholy. And he's right. The common perception today, as it was back in the 1700s, if you want to live a dull life, do it God's way, obey God's commands. But Law says just the opposite is true. To live by the way of the wicked is the dull, uneasy, melancholy life. Look at our world today. We are free, sensuous, everything goes, very few restraints, no inhibitions, and we think that's the way to the blessed life. I'm going to do it my way, do whatever we want. And what do we have today? Our world is dull, uneasy, filled with melancholy, anxiety, depressed. We have more lawyers and psychologists by far than any other society in the world. How's that working for us? God says, don't be greedy. You might as well be eating gravel. Don't be dishonest. That's like putting dust in your eyes. Don't go against my word. You might as well pour wine in your ear. The one to be envied does not walk in the way of the wicked, does not go against God's created order. Now, there's more to being blessed than just avoiding evil. Verse 1 is the negative side of the blessing, what he does not do. Verse 2 is the positive description of what he does do. You know, if your life is all don'ts, don't, 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 that's just prudishness, okay? There has to be something more. So what's the envied one do? It says he delights and meditates on the law of God. Now, the law is not just the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament. It's the whole spectrum of God's will for us, including the whole Bible, of course. And the word in Hebrew to meditate is the word hagach. Now, if you're Hebrew, you have to have a little guttural sound at the end of that. Let me hear you say hagach. Hagach. Yeah. Sound like you're gagging, okay? And the key to understanding hagach is in that piece of gum. So I want you to take that stick of gum and I want you to unwrap it, but do not put it in your mouth just yet. Unwrap it and hang on to the wrapper. Keep your wrapper because I don't want you to see you stick your gum underneath our nice seats. That's the first thing the staff thought of when I brought this up to them on Monday. And if you stick your gum under that seat, the person who sits there next week will be sitting in the seat of a scoffer, and that's you, okay? And parents, watch your kids. I'm watching you. In fact, I think I'm going to take pictures, see where all of you are sitting. Okay, let's get this here. All right. I'm not sure this will do a lot of good because we're going to pick up these chairs anyway, but... We've got a record now, okay? All right. Now, we're going to put that gum in our mouths. Not yet. When you put it in your mouth, I don't want you to just... I don't want you to chomp, chomp, chomp. I want you to chew slowly with your mouth closed, please. And I want you to just study the flavors and let the juices juice, okay? I want you to take time chewing it slowly and really taste it while I explain... Hagah. Okay, go ahead, put it in, chew slowly, mouth shut. All right? Hagah literally means to mutter or to talk to yourself, to ponder. Isaiah 31 4, it says, as a lion growls a great lion over his prey. The word translated growl is the same word, that Hebrew word, hagah. 
growling over its prey. He's muttering to himself. It's very similar to maybe a dog with a nice big juicy bone. They gnaw on it. They chew on it. They turn it over, spend time with it, getting every little taste out of it. And sometimes there's this little little grumble or growl. You hear them enjoying themselves, murmuring to themselves, delighting, savoring it. That's hagach. Talking to yourself, muttering, pondering, growling, chewing, tasting, meditating. And it says the blessed one is that someone who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he hagaz every day and night. In other words, it's in his mind, in his heart. One of the findings of psychology over the past few decades is how important spirituality and meditation is in having a healthy, happy, wholesome life. Psychology has finally figured out we are spiritual beings after all. And when we live in harmony with our spiritual nature, that's when we find physical, psychological, social, emotional, and relational health. And one aspect of healthy spirituality is the ability to meditate, to contemplate, to hagach. Well, I'm too busy to hagach. I got five kids and I got this job. Well, let me ask you, are you busier than Jesus was? He was on the go, 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 go. He had a lot to get done in three years, but he also knew he had to hagach, spend some time with God, and sometimes he spent all night with God. And that's what we're aiming for in these psalms, to deepen our walk with God by letting the psalms speak to us and, and pray with us. Read one psalm a day, it's all we're asking, even, maybe even just part of a psalm, and hagah on it. By the way, if you want to get rid of the gum, you put it in the wrapper and take it with you, or you keep hagahing if you wanted to. Anyway, but notice here, in this psalm, there's a very specific object to this meditation. Unlike transcendental meditation or a lot of Eastern forms of meditation, the blessed person isn't just meditating on nothing. It's not emptying your mind. We have enough emptying of our minds these days. The blessed person is meditating on the law and the word of God. Meditation is prayerful reflection on what God has just told you in his word. The person to be envied is the person who does not mingle in the way of the wicked. That's what he does not do. Here's what he does do. He lets the will of God be the dominating force in his mind and heart. I see kids with parents who hagah the word of God. And I think those kids are blessed to have those parents. The purpose of meditation is to make the truth clear to your mind and real to your heart. It's tasting the goodness and the sweetness and the flavor of God's word it's shaping your mind and your emotions and your affections and your imagination. And, and as you're reading, you can ask yourself questions like, you know, if these verses are true, what's that mean for me? And, and you sit and haggai it for a while, contemplate and think about it and, and work it out. If these verses are true, how would my life be different if I truly followed them? Haggai that, you know, and ponder it. If these verses are true, what difference would it make in my life, in the lives of those around me? And you're just thinking through all the implications of it. Someone once said that meditation is the mind descending into the heart. And if you start to ask questions of that word you're reading, you'll start delighting in it, and your heart is going to be shaped, and you will start to notice some changes. His delight is in the law of the Lord. If you haggah on the law, eventually you'll find that you need this daily diet of the word. This law is life-giving. There's no sense here that the law is stifling or rigid or burdened, but it's something that brings joy and pleasure. I'm going to give you two lists, and I want you to think, which one do you want to be full of? Which of these do you want to be delighting in? First list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You want to be full of that, or... Second list, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. 
Which is the delight? Which is the one to be envied? I know people who are love, joy, peace, and patience. I like to be around them. And then there's people who are filled with hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Really don't want to be around them. So in these two verses, we see two ways, two sources of influence, two shapers of the human heart, and the psalmist is challenging us, we'll either be meditating and walking in God's wisdom, or we'll be walking in the wisdom of the world in human wisdom. And the thing about walking in the wisdom of the world, you don't have to do anything. It'll just happen. You've got to be uh, proactive about letting God's wisdom into your heart and into your mind. The rest of the chapter, then, are the consequences of his ver- choices, verses 3 through 6. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water. The wicked are like shafts. So uh, for the rest of this sermon, just for a few minutes, I want to haggah on trees for a minute. Just contemplate, you know, what does a tree teach us about the one who meditates and delights in the law of God? Well, one thing I notice about trees, they don't grow overnight. And one possible implication of this tree analogy, as I haggah on it, is Meditation takes time to bring growth. Meditation takes a great deal of time, like trees, and it's cumulative in its effects. So if you hear this sermon and you're like, oh, this is great, I want to change my life, and you go out and meditate for five minutes, don't expect major change. There's not going to be a 180-degree turnaround. Now, God could do it. Jesus can do it. I don't want to put anything past him. But for the most part, we're more like trees, and trees take time. And not all trees make it, by the way. They often die before they even get started. So you've got to hang in there, keep feeding, you know, keep watering, consistently giving yourself the word. What else about trees? Trees imply stability, firmly rooted and strong. They stand through the storms. And in the same way, meditation leads to depth and stability. Shaft implies instability. It's blown away. There's no anchor. Whatever the culture believes, the shaft believes, okay? The winds come and they blow, the storms beat down, but the meditator is deeply rooted and can persevere. Shaft implies weakness, can't stand up against anything. What's interesting about Psalm 1, by the way, if you look at the verbs that are attached to the ungodly, it's verbs of movement. Walk, stand, sit, blows away. You know, the ungodly are in this constant motion. They're restless without direction, carried here and there by by these forces over which they have no control. Shaft is subject to the winds of circumstance. They're blown here and there by the winds of people's approval. The meditating person has none of that. He's characterized not by random movement, but by a tree that's stable. Planted, it will stand no matter how hard the wind blows. Unlike Shaft, the meditating person is not subject to the vicissitudes of life. What else about trees? What else? Well, Psalmist does a little pondering of trees. says, the leaf does not wither, yields fruit, whatever he does prospers. Meditation leads to life and productivity. The tree's alive, growing and fresh. There's a vitality to his life. He has a constant source of water and nutrients. Shaft, it's dead. It's dry and it's worthless. The one who delights in the will of God produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. He needs a blessing to others. Shaft produces nothing and is no good to anyone. The description of the tree here is pretty lengthy. He says a lot about the tree. Shaft, he doesn't say much about except that it's blown away. What more can you say about shaft? This passage reminds me of something Jesus taught in the New Testament. There are two paths, two ways, and two gates. There's a narrow way that a few will follow. And then there's a broad way that the majority will follow. And you need to understand, if you're here today, 
following the law of God, you are in the minority. There is no moral majority in the United States. We are not a Christian nation. Jesus is seldom popular in any nation. And the principles that he teach are essentially the same as what we have here in the psalm. And psalm says, if you take the narrow path, you will win. Often you'll be better off in this world, but for sure you'll be better off in the big picture. So if you decide to go his way, this way, you will be blessed, but you need to realize you'll also be in the, in the minority and not, not the majority. There's a cross-country championship held in Riverside, California a few years ago. And 123 of 128 runners missed the turn. One runner, Mike Del Cavo, stayed on the 10,000-meter course and began waving for fellow runners to follow him. The rest were going the wrong way. Del Cavo was able to convince only four other runners to go with him. Five out of 128 went the right direction. And when I read that article, I wondered, how tough was it for those five to go the right way when the majority was going the other way? It's tough to go against the crowds. If the majority is going that way, that must be the right way. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Jesus said, if you follow me and follow the will of God, you will be in the minority at school, at work, maybe even in your family. But it's the only way to blessing in life. That's why we need the church, by the way. We're just five out of 128. But us five, we just keep encouraging one another, keep each other on the right path. I want to finish with a few verses from Psalm 119. It's another one of my favorites. The psalmist says, I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O God. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. It's hard for me to select psalms for you to read each week, <clears throat> but I'm trying to pick them based on familiarity, variety, and length. I, I just want to give you a taste of them. So this week, I want you to haggah on these psalms, 15, 19, 23, 24, 29, 32, and 33. And the key is not to read a lot, but read them in depth. Haggah them. Chew gum while you're reading them. It'll remind you to meditate. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. It is a delight. It is life-giving, life-sustaining, and we need to feed on it. I pray this book will become our diet for the summer and that we will chew on your word and meditate and let it sink into our minds and into our hearts. Thank you for the life that we can have in your word and especially the ultimate word, which is Jesus our Savior. And it's in him we pray. Amen.